This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild is brought to you in part by the Calliopeia Foundation. We are grateful for their continued support and the support of grassroots contributions from listeners like you. Learn more at calliopeia.org. To make a donation, visit forthewild.world/donate or find us on Patreon. If you'd like to support us in other ways, consider sharing our episodes through social media or leaving us a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Amy Rose Full. I think that the medicine for tragedy is community. We have everything that we need. Amy Rose is an enrolled tribal member of the Abenaki, a veteran of the U.S. Army, and an alumni of Cornell University. She is cultivating the next generation of land and water protectors through sharing knowledge in indigenous lifeways and ethnobotany. A passion for agriculture and deep concerns about community food security led her to become a stakeholder in the Virginia Department of Agriculture Equitable Food-Oriented Distribution Task Force and founder of Virginia Free Farms. Through Virginia Free Farms, Amy Rose provides free, nutrient-dense food assistance to those with need, free of charge, plants, and seeds to community gardens, schools, and community-based organizations, and educates young people in the Richmond metro area about indigenous agriculture and lifeways. Well, Amy Rose, thank you so much for joining us on For the Wild podcast today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, I'd like to preface Virginia Free Farms by first discussing one of the great ironies of this country, which is the surplus of the food we theoretically have access to amidst our staggering rates of hunger. And it's even more complex when you begin to think about food waste, as well as the reality that the majority of small-scale farmers rarely make enough to sustain themselves with farming alone. In preparation for our conversation, I learned that despite Virginia's 46,000 farms, some counties have rates of food insecurity that double the national average. So can you begin by framing this conundrum for listeners and why we need to work on projects that simultaneously seek to address the quality of food offered to the community, the well-being of farmers, and equitable distribution. Uh, yeah, I actually live in one of those counties. So before the pandemic hit, we were looking at about 13.7 million households in the U.S. being food insecure. After the pandemic hit, we're looking at 35 million households that can't either meet their needs on a daily basis or they're uncertain of how to fill their plates 
So when we look at all the ways um, and all of the issues surrounding food security that come together, we really more accurately need to assess how we can innovate and problem solve on these issues because it's so many things that go into this problem. I mean, we waste 80 billion pounds of food in the U.S. a year. That's like 30 or 40 percent of the food supply and the largest component of solid waste that goes into our landfills every year, which is massive. We need to start looking at that in a perverse light. I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but the fact that so many people are food insecure and we're throwing so much food away is just absolutely um, abhorrent. We also need to look at the set of facts and imagine better access um, and attempt to create an alternative model for production and delivery in order to serve these demographics that are experiencing this more effectively, while also kind of attending to the well-being of what is considered a small-scale farm worker. We have, as you said, over 40,000 farms in Virginia, and many of them are not solvent because of this race to the bottom price structure that has been put into play by industrial farms, making it impossible to compete. And that's not new. It's been going on since the 80s, very early 80s. So small responsible land stewards are crushed by these large vertically integrated organizations who are poisoning the water and land and causing desertification of our arable farmland and massive topsoil soil loss. So we have hundreds of farms in bankruptcy right now in the US and what really worries me is mental and physical well-being of these small farmers in addition to the possibility of these existing behemoths compounding the factors that are already causing so much food insecurity and such financial hardships for the small farmers by buying up all these farms and further consolidating farmlands and perpetuating that system that's been devised to control us so much. It's That system works the way that it was designed to work. It's almost the same thing as burning food stores and cornfields that controlled my ancestors. You control the food, and you control the people. And that's exactly what it was meant to do. And so I guess our liberation as a people in the US is intimately tied together. Um, I think we kind of collectively need to work to make a drastic change in our own corrupt food system by re-education of people and imagination of a new alternative model. We're trying to start getting to that I realize that the biggest room in the house is room for improvement. So every day we are doing a little bit more, working with different community groups um, to help get these people fed. And end goal is to kind of do a top-down and bottom-up approach um, for getting food distributed more equitably, um, getting people growing for themselves, all that sort of stuff. And it must include forging an alternative model that seeds new in innovation in line with like traditional ecological knowledge um, to save ourselves from the agricultural industrial complex that's not going to change unless we do something about it. Our, we can't change that what's been happening, but we can transform the future into something powerful if we work together. In preparation for our conversation, I was reminded of a previous interview I just did with Vijay Prashad, and they spoke at great length as to what it means for the cultural morality of a country like the United States that loudly boasts of its prosperity and convenience, yet it refuses to ensure its citizens are fed. <laughs> I mean, food insecurity impacts every community, 
yet no political party or popular movement really seeks to address it. So with this in mind, reading about how Virginia Free Farm really lives up to the ethos of giving freely was a sign of relief. And I wonder if you could speak to the specificities of this and what it looks like and who are you serving when you practice free food and free medicine? We actually serve everyone. We serve a lot of individual families and community organizations and anyone that wants to wants to kind of check out of the system. Currently, we have quite a few different programs going on. We do a land access for LGBTQ um, gardeners, um, BIPOC gardeners, anybody that wants to get some garden therapy and that otherwise, otherwise might feel a little bit um, uncomfortable in the traditional, like, you know, good old boy type farming situation or wants to learn. We do, we have a free open source uh, learning library. We have a seed library that's also free um, to community members. We do food distribution uh, twice a week to about 550 um, individuals. And we're hoping to expand, well, we are expanding this year. Now we've got a fridge program going on and we have four satellite farms that are opening that are going to be funneling food into those refrigerator programs so that we can serve more people because we can only do so much from this piece of land. So we actually have been working um, to mobilize other community groups and other individuals to kind of replicate, because there's nothing that I do that's like groundbreaking or hard. I just get up every day and do something that puts food on somebody else's table. That's literally my motivation every single day. So like you said, we have part of what the, I guess you should say ethos or the reason is, like you said in the very beginning when you introduced this, is there are counties in Virginia that have double the national average of poverty, and I live in one of those. But we don't just take care of this community. And we've been working real, we've been working really hard for the last couple of years um, and really getting a lot of great innovation and collaboration out of our team members. I think above all else, that's the most important thing. The people that I work with are so hardworking and are they care about their community so much. So we're trying to figure out ways to reimagine working within an existing system in a practical way, while also at the same time providing kind of a working example of alternative model or models for food distribution um, for people to use and to check out because we really need to be able to serve that target audience in a practical way. If we are just, you can't just go into a community and distribute food and expect that to work. So we're actually getting the community to grow a lot of their own food as well. Eventually we want to be able to use additional donations to support small farms that are generally stewarding the land well, because there's a ton of small farms that end up throwing away a lot of their produce, um, which is terrible. I mean, when you go to the farmer's market, you see these tables filled with abundance, and a lot of that food never gets eaten or sold. So eventually what we want to do is start acting as a social, uh, financial safety net for these small farms as well. Some of these farmer's markets, I mean, a lot of people are like, yeah, it's great. Farmer's markets will offer fresh match for SNAP recipients. That's awesome. But if you are a single mother with like, I don't know, a toddler at home and you have no way to get to the farmer's market, you don't have access to transportation, whatever, 
what good does that do you? You can't get there. So we are trying to work on all of these problems because it is such an intersectional, food access is such an intersectional issue. So we're kind of working to fix all of these things and working them out. So we've kind of gotten a bunch of people mobilized and harvest or harnessed that momentum by collaborating and working at some of the same types of projects with them together. And that's really been life-giving to the farm. I mean, we hold so much more power and so much more powerful medicine when we can struggle together to get things done. And it's been absolutely amazing um, watching everything change and so many people get fed on a regular basis. So we've got community gardens going in and those community gardens are stewarded by the people that live there. We're not just coming in and dropping food and leaving because that doesn't do anybody any good. And it's important to involve the community because the community really knows what they need to heal themselves. But a lot of times people don't listen. There's a lot of this like white savior complex stuff that comes in and they'll like the food pantry food. I'm not knocking food pantries. I think they're fantastic. They're necessary. But a lot of the stuff that gets donated is shelf stable garbage food that really is not good for us and doesn't do anyone any good. So we're trying to kind of overcome that. I mean, everyone loves a good box of macaroni and cheese every once in a while. I'm not going to lie. I love that. I grew up in a family where, like, I don't know, I'm sure you've heard about the stereotypical commodity foods going into tribal households. I grew up with commodity foods in my grandmother's kitchen. I remember those black and white boxes. Sometimes that gross government cheese is so satisfying. (laughs) but it's not good for us and it's really killing us. And that's dependency. And what I want to do is create a measure of self-sufficiency and liberation from that food dependency for the people in my community. And hopefully beyond, I've had people reaching out to me from Maryland recently to create the same thing in that state as well. So hopefully we can get gain momentum and replicate it everywhere because it's so easy and it really is the most fulfilling thing ever. I love hearing that. (laughs) I see, um, yeah, just people everywhere really wanting to step into the work. And another thing that was coming up for me was the word rewilding. And I know that rewilding is really at the heart of so many conversations I've had over the years. And often on the program, we talk about the scale at which wild places have been infringed upon by development. But I've had less opportunities to discuss how development has infringed upon rural landscapes and communities. And I'm really curious to hear if you've seen sprawling development, urbanization, and gentrification change the place you now call home, and if this development impacts large and small-scale farms differently. So I guess I can only really speak from my own perspective on that, I guess. I don't know about, like small or large scale farms versus small scale because we're pretty small. I've got 26 acres, but only six of them are under cultivation because it's very important to me specifically to have set aside land for wildlife. So a large portion of our farm is actually wildlife or a wildlife habitat. When you pull down Broad Street, so you're talking about sprawl. So we actually have frontage on Broad Street, which is the main road that runs through um, Richmond, Virginia on the way out to Charlottesville. Charlottesville and Richmond are gradually growing each 
direction. That kind of makes me a little bit nervous, but um, there are things available. Like our county actually has um, development easement. You can like sell the development rights or promise that you, they won't be developed. I'm not really sure. There's a program here in Virginia. I'm not sure whether it's universal across the US, but there is a program that you can take your um, agricultural land and make it so that even if the land has sold, it can't be developed in that way. I'd have to get more information on that, but I can't remember off the top of my head what that is called right now. But I do know that like for us, when I moved here, we are at the very tail end of the York River watershed. The creek that runs through my property is called Roundabout Creek, and it flows into, I believe it goes South Anna River, then Pamunkey River, then the York River, and then out into the out into the Atlantic Ocean. And, you know, everything trickles downstream. Everyone's heard that phrase. Our water here was a mess. Um, it had been driven through and the front fields, um, I don't know, it was kind of like a, a ditch. It's not very deep here, but the end of Roundabout Creek where the headwaters of this, all these rivers run are here on our property. And they had been destroyed, like absolutely destroyed by tractor traffic. And so I've been here, I believe, six years now, going on seven years on this property. And we purposely kind of set that area aside. There's big signs when you come down the road and turn onto the farm driveway that say, do not mow wildlife habitat. And now we have where it was muddy, mucky mess and there was nothing there. Now we've got standing perennial water and the Maryland Meadow Beauties are returning, the bottle brush bushes are returning, and it's really beautiful to witness. It's kind of one of the most magical things, but it also works with me on the farm, paying attention to our water sources and our wildlife around us is so incredibly important. I mean, we see tons of birds returning to the area from the habitat area, we let things grow up and very strategically manage the undergrowth and um, the woodlot area with prescribed burns and clearing. We've had so many birds returned and that really actually helps us because we do not spray pesticides and we do not till. So the birds help us keep our pest pressure down tremendously. I, lo I love hearing that. It's amazing. I was thinking about in terms of the birds, like when I interviewed Peter Wellenben and we were talking about planting oak trees and he had mentioned, I think the scrub jay is the best at planting oaks. And um, it's just such a beautiful reminder to get out of my narrow human mind frame when it comes to tending the land and all of the kin that's around us that are tending all the time that some of us aren't even aware of. Oh my gosh, yes, we evolved in nature. I think we've forgotten that. <laughs> yeah. So many people have forgotten that, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and modernity just continues to support us in the forgetting. And uh, yeah, um, but I'm, yeah, I'm thinking about the many histories of extraction in relationship to what we might identify as rural America, you know, industries that really propped up economies for several decades, but were ultimately detrimental to community and kin. And 
I know this is a really complex history that I don't want to oversimplify, but we know that rural America has been largely left behind in the dust of globalization. And there's been a great loss of young people who moved to surrounding cities, uh, joined the armed forces, etc. And just that sort of legacy and the very real impacts that has on a place. Yet Virginia Free Farm is an example of radical transformation through regenerative farming and perhaps even working toward changing the trajectory of rural homelands and what wildlife preservation and restoration can look like in conjunction with farming. Because in other parts of the world, wildlife restoration and farming are mutually exclusive. So I wonder if you could speak to any thread here that piques interest. I am actually one of those people that poverty is a really great recruiter for the armed forces. So I actually ended up joining the army. I found my way to farming kind of like later in life. It was weird. I spent a lot of time in nature. I mean, my journey here to farming has never been a straight path. It's been as meandering and imperfect as the Appalachian streams I spent the weeks of my youth overturning rocks and crayfish for. Um, Like, I don't know. You're talking about the brain drain and the industries that are controversial now. I actually got into a fight with my mother this weekend about um, the Keystone XL pipeline. (laughs) And it was not pretty. But... um, oh man, I don't even know where to start because it's so big and there's so much that I could, you know, pick on each one of those things. I think the overarching feeling needs to be that if we fail to make current decisions for those that are yet to come or the unborn more so than those are, that are currently alive, this is what I was trying to like impress upon her, that we are like categorically unfit to make these decisions because we need to think about what who are who's coming after us and we cannot let these things go unchecked or the unchecked destruction of our natural resources continue you know water soil animal plant life they are more important than anything else but i feel bad because we are living in i feel bad saying that because at the same time we live in this capitalistic like western society where the value of a forest is greater when the trees are cut down than when they are standing. So it's very hard to reconcile those two things or to know like, what is the answer to bridging the gap between, you know, how will our leaders affect the change needed to repair the damaged ecosystems and also continue to allow people to maintain the lifestyles that they expect in modernity, as you said, like, how do we find that? I think that's the big thing that we really need to um, we really need to answer. But I also think that, like at the same time, there's a lot of this extractive agricultural um, practice that goes on out here too, where it's sad because those big tractors can practically drive themselves, and not knocking big farmers because there's some big farms that are considered quote unquote family farms. That's not what you think of when you think of like the Rockwellian beautiful rolling pastoral um you know scenes in our head but those farmers that farm that way they're little more than technicians they're not artisans they don't it's not the same thing that it used to be and that I think that the regenerative crowd is trying to kind of bring back 
So I think that like by revitalizing these agricultural traditions and really planting with more of an ecological mindset, maybe we can start to bring some of that back or people can find value in that simple lifestyle. Um, I don't know what the, um, I don't know what the solution to that is, but I'm hopeful that by getting that stuff or getting better understanding for what's going on with this agricultural revolution right now, that we might be able to turn a corner because I know that this industrial farming nonsense is not the answer, especially that we don't need it to feed the world because we throw away so much food and yet leave people starving, like you said. It's perverse. It's mm -hmm. absolutely perverse. Mm -hmm. And so why are we ever trying to produce more and more and more and push and push and push for no reason? It's mm -hmm. to sell more chemicals and to put to line more people's pockets with patented seeds and herbicides and pesticides that we don't need. Right. And it's making us sick. Right. All about that boom and bust cash flow BS. <laughs> yeah. And the bad thing is like, so we are, a cons we are a commodity. We mm -hmm. have become nothing more than a product for those people to make more money off of us and then send us right over to big pharma so that we can take some pills and create a feedback loop in that food and pharma, you know, cycle. We're like a hamster on a wheel. There's a world where we long to be known. It's where we've got to go in this world. so true and yeah thank you for reminding us of those truths because I'm sure many of us if not all of us listening know that and it's just a good reminder and um yeah I I came across an interview you gave on Mother Earth News where you're quoted saying I realize one woman can't single-handedly transform an entire regional food shed. Luckily, women from matrilineal systems are taught from a young age to take up space and use their power by design. We have little trouble unapologetically embracing the positions of leadership and strength meant for us. My ancestors have willed this resistance into existence. I'm instinctively led by the wisdom and blood memory of all the matriarchs that came before me. End quote. And this notion of ancestral willed resistance is so powerful. And I wonder if you could speak to the importance of taking up space and using power thoughtfully and impactfully, especially in areas like agriculture, 
where there are these sort of perpetual questions around scaling up or staying small? So for me, really the intention behind this and the deliberation of living kind of like every day as ceremony, every day as prayer is kind of seeking to honor my ancestors. I mean, for me, I'm a big seed nerd. I love plants. So that's where I focus a lot of my energy on is preserving, growing out, preserving and distributing seeds. Um, kind of my ancestors protected these seeds for millennia through profound adversity. And so we as a people are an endangered species. So it's vital to protect our traditional seeds and our indigenous foodways. These seeds to me represent a commitment to be a good ancestor, to preserve them for future generations, to come to protect the future biodiversity of our land. But I can't do that unless I am making sure that the wildlife around my farm also protected biodiversity because all of these systems work together. And I think that a lot of times farmers don't, or traditional farmers don't remember that. And there's just like wholesale herbicide spraying or even like the, the uh, railways that run through our towns and cities. That's harmful too. Um, and so all of that, there's a lot of barriers put up for us um, as native, native people for reclamation of our traditional food ways, be it people being cut off from traditional lands or subsistence lands, damage from resources extraction, climate change, political or legal reg regulations um, or local resource control, but you know. So this is a small way that I can remember them in a way and make sure that my children and their children's children remember them as well because if we don't do this work no one else will do it for us and it's so important especially considering like our foodways where they have arguably more influence over current world cuisine sounds ridiculous because when you think of native american food what do you think of, of fry bread no that ain't it but Approximately 75% of everything that we chat down on or put on our plates right now is indigenous to the Americas. So for ancestor, for millennia, millennia, my ancestors cultivated this like vast agroecology of food crops and we've all been but forgotten. So I guess that's part of why, that's why I am the way I am. <laughs> I don't know how else to see or say it other than that, but it's kind of like a lived legacy for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel yeah. silly saying that's why I am the way I am. No, but I get that. I feel that in my own ways that this is, yeah, there's so much that has made us who we are. And, and I just love the way you speak to that type of empowerment. So, um, yeah, but I'd like to transition our conversation to seed saving you brought that up and it's something oh that... my favorite subject <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I love this subject too and lately I've been thinking about how many scientists and researchers are scrambling to create new breeds of plants that are sturdier in the face of increasing temperatures things like heat resistant seeds or 
changing a plant's capacity for photosynthesis. And small-scale farmers and foragers are doing this as well, but coupled with an effort in repopulating local native seed and preserving genetic diversity. And so I'd like to ask you about this, but perhaps you could speak to it through the lens of how Virginia Free Farms is assisting the rematriation of seeds from the USDA and universities back to the Rappahannock tribe and the Monacan Indian nation. Yeah, oh my gosh, this is the best. And so we actually work with the Richmond Indigenous Society too, which is good. It's uh, kind of like a little or loose organization in Richmond, Virginia that serves to kind of create family and the community, indigenous community and fellowship for tribal diaspora that's that are no longer living on their ancestral homelands, of which I am one. I am Penobscot and Abenaki living on Monacan land. Um, so seeds are an, uh, seeds and foodways are an awesome teaching tool. I have kids, so it's a great way to teach language, culture, all that sort of stuff. Um, so revitalizing these agricultural pathways is um, something that I'm very passionate about. And I actually reached out, I don't even remember what brought me to this. Um, reaching out to the Rappahannock and the Monacan last year about really making a concerted effort to get this going, to preserve their agricultural le uh, legacy. And I mean, I guess because I no longer live in my family's ancestral lands between Quebec and Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. Um, so they were, they bit and it was awesome. I started communicating with the University of Maryland and VCU and the USDA. And I will never forget, we, we arranged these uh, meetings with the tribal council from the Rappahannock and um, some members of the Monica nation. And I think they're one of their administrators there. Um, and I, I, my assistant and I went up to meet with the Rappahannock um, Tribal Council and they were great. And we went over to, they, we left their tribal center and followed them over to the hereditary chief's home. They're working on um, restoring and they were interested in setting up a medicine garden there. And I had actually, as soon as they wrote back saying, yes, we were interested in doing these things, I immediately started petitioning these different places um, to um, give up any of their accessions that they had in their germoplasm repository that were attributed to these tribes. And when I got home from a day of driving around out in Stevens Church, Virginia, which is where um, the Monacan Winter Hunting Grounds are and where their tribal center is, I got a package in the mail from the USDA with seeds that belong to the Ravagenic Nation. And it was like, just magical. So it was, it felt like, yes, a small victory. If that makes any sense, I feel so silly because it's like making the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And it, I have the biggest smile on my face, but it made me so happy I could have cried. Um, so we are, the pandemic hit and kind of, you know, threw a monkey wrench in all of this. So I'll be working with Keith, or Kirk Richardson, um, who is one of their tribal council members, and getting that going for them this year. Um, 
with the help of some volunteers and a little bit of fundraising. And hopefully that will be a good teaching tool for the tribe to kind of inform the community around them that like, hey, we're still here. We're not some image in time adrift somewhere in your imagination that's sitting around dressed in beads and buckskin. We're still here. We still live here. We exist. We're not just something in your history books from elementary school or, you know, a mascot for your sports team. We're people with a rich cultural history. And unfortunately, because of the way things went down, a lot of our foodways were lost. And if it's one thing that I can do with my life, helping to reclaim some of that, that'll be enough for me. I will probably do this, this work until the day I die. It is the most fulfilling thing ever. But I'm very excited about that because we've actually been able to get somewhere and had a really great um, response from these institutions. And I mean, some of the seeds in my own seed bank are extremely rare. We were one of two, um, one of the corn varieties we grew last year. We were one of two growers in all of North America. This year, I think I'm going to intensively be growing out um, Pima white corn, which is very water thrifty very short, stocky, um, 60-day corn that doesn't need to be irrigated very much. And seeds like that, like you were saying, these people are trying to adapt seeds to deal with climate change, all, all of that sort of stuff. I mean, think of the potential for that. It matures quickly, doesn't need water. I mean, doesn't need as much water. Can kind of left, be left to its own devices. But it, you can't buy it commercially from seed companies or anything like that. What's to say something like that is not going to be our answer to adaptation to what we all see in the grocery store that we know is not going away anytime soon to kind of overcome these climate changes. I think that sometimes the things that have been sitting right next to us this whole time might be the answer to our problems. So preserving these native varieties that were very meticulously adapted for a particular, for very particular growing climates or microclimates over millennia are going to be key. I mean, I can't even tell you how many people I talk to because we do sell some seeds on a web store as um, fundraisers because we don't sell food. I can't even tell you the amount of people that have told me or asked me, sent me messages on Etsy asking me, can you eat this corn? Or they'll start off by saying, I know not all corn is edible. And I'm just like beside myself. I'm like, yes, absolutely. All corn is edible. Just because it's not yellow and in the grocery store does not mean that it's inedible. I promise you, my ancestors were not sitting around saying, what can we decorate our Wigglemax with? <laughs> like, no. But these things might actually be the answer, as you said, to circle back to climate change, because there are so the depth and breadth of different characteristics is astounding and it's beautiful especially in the different phenotypical um, presentations of the varieties of different native tomatoes. So amazing. It's captivating. And it's really motivating to getting kids to learn about these sort of things too. Kids love color and all that fun stuff. And I think that if we can get our children involved in this sort of stuff, because they're the ones that are going to have to deal with what we're doing right now. You know, I think that's also a clutch is them involved and getting them working on it now so that they can take up this work and continue. Finally, it was hanging low, low and 
There's so much in that response. Thank you for taking us to all those places. And I'm thinking about how Virginia Free Farms, you know, really emphasizes the importance of disseminating and democratizing education around agriculture, especially as it has become a commodified field. And so in recognition of this, I wonder if you <laughs> could maybe outline or share a bit about the practicality of starting your own small-scale farm and what your journey was like starting Virginia Free Farm. Oh, I feel like I feel like I'm doing a bad thing or like <laughs> <laughs> by by making all of this stuff shareable and open source online because okay, so for me, I had a conversation with one of our teammates teammates um the other day. She actually I stole her from the city of Richmond, but got her to come out here um so she's a very talented grower and she now lives three doors down from me and has her own mini farm over there that's going to be helping with some of the things that Virginia Free Farm is doing and she is Chirua so she's going to be focusing on a lot of the South American um varieties things that are you know of interest to her but we were talking about the whole education aspect and sharing that information and not hoarding information or lording over information for yourself because, or to stay in power, because to be honest with you, like this is why collaboration is so important. I have no interest in me. I want to do all of the things, but I understand that I might be a little ADHD and I have no interest in lording over this project for the rest of my life. I just want to facilitate people to be able to do this for themselves. And so that was the whole reason I started aggregating um, some of the information to empower other people to be able to do it for themselves. Because if we make the commodification of these things like obsolete by everybody's got for access to it anyway, you know what I mean? I mean, I've even got stuff on there about like getting your finances in order and figuring out how to market your products, even though we don't market. I did at one time sell commercially, um, but my life changed so that I didn't need to do all of those things. And so I just want to be able to empower other people. And we were talking about it the other day and my ideal setup is that whole not being able to tell who's the boss type thing. I don't, do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> like the concept yeah, of like everyone like is so good at doing what they're doing right. you don't know who's in charge right like, like everybody's doing their you know doing staying in their lane and being amazing and we're all coming together with our skills and our yeah like that collaborative effort I love that oh yeah absolutely so like one of the things that we were starting this year anyway was the RVA fridge program I'm sorry I'm diverging a little bit but I'll tie it back in I promise so to that end I had 
because of Farmer's Footprint, I had spoken to Amber Tam on the phone and she was talking about the fridge program that her and her partner were doing. And I'm like, yes, we're going to do that here in Virginia. I started, I had already started making arrangements um, with my team and a local chef. And so, and the satellite farms, because our plan was to empower the satellite farms to run on their own independently of us, but, uh, but you know, doing the same exact thing and just facilitating them, helping them and then do this fridge program. I found a girl who had just graduated from VCU and this was her thing. She wanted to do an RVA fridge program. And so we just started funneling things to her and we actually ended up getting one of our, um, one of our sponsors to commit to providing a refrigerator a month for the next 12 months. But I'm not going to be in the middleman. She's going to be, I'm just literally facilitating. I like to facilitate and I like to network. Um, I've been called the spider because I like to connect people together and weave that web of human interaction. I think that's really the most important thing that we can do is to help each other be the best possible worker, facilitator, I don't know, facilitate each other to do the best possible job that they can do. Um, And it's, amazing because we literally I just started talking to Taylor a few weeks ago and already there's a massive plan underway and it's already making an impact on the community it's really great like that's why I'm doing it that's why I'm doing the knowledge dissemination and I understand people want to like put out those programs for like permaculture certificates and sustainable agriculture programs and all of that sort of stuff But also, I don't want, like, I've already done the things, and I don't want anyone else to have to struggle. So, like, why not help people? I know I'm not getting anything out of it, but it's not about me anyway. I do none of this because of me. I guess that's why, also, I want to share with everyone. I want to make everyone's life better. I mean, we the the whole thing about the amount of food we throw away and the insolvency in small farms and um, the hunger is just crazy to me, especially when we have the philanthropy dollars in the US to fix these problems, but they're not given, there's, there's a huge disparity in the demographics of where philanthropy dollars go. We could literally solve these problems if the funding went into the right places, but uh, it's always got to be filtered through this, the or through the um, I guess through the pipe of like, I don't know, middle-aged white. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be alienating by saying this, but like a lot of the philanthropy dollars go to organizations run by middle-aged white men. I've noticed that a lot of women are leading food uh, sovereignty and food security pushes and a lot of women of color are leading these pushes but like black women and brown women do not get the funding that other people get and it's really unfortunate because I almost everyone I work with that is leading this project or the groups that we are working with are women and probably half of them are women of color and we just do not get the attention and we do not get the same fund equal funding um I mean, we apply for grants all the time, but, but um, yeah, we just don't get the same attention that like, the ASBCA gets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like in terms of 
the white dudes getting the funding. It's just this this way that trust has been built around money and mistrust and who mm -hmm. is trusted with money. And it's usually white men. And uh, it's really like this self-perpetuating loop uh, that we are breaking and that's wonderful. And, um, you know, I have mm, a type of confidence that things are changing, but yeah, I, I, I know that they are still in that transition and I'm appreciative that you spoke to those pieces and yeah, I'd be remiss not to highlight some of your upcoming work particularly with Virginia delegate Jennifer Carroll Foy and the creation of green housing and equitable food forest. And I'm really thinking about the importance of us getting involved in green housing initiatives before climate gentrification starts to dictate everything. So I wonder if you either could share some of the concrete work you're doing or perhaps what your vision is for green equitable housing in places like Virginia. Yeah, so originally, um, Lavisha Rollins from C5, which is, she is actually one of my Women's Earth Alliance um, sisters, and she is a green architect located in Charles City County, which is on the other side of Richmond here. So this whole thing came about um, because of her imagination sitting at lunch at the Daily in Richmond one day. Um, and so her vision was kind of like green tiny housing. And what we're thinking, because all of these things are intersectional. So what we had dreamed up was city of Petersburg to be kind of a set test site because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of very, very low income individuals and families in that area. And that's one of the areas that a lot of our food goes to. Um, and this all came about, I want to say around Thanksgiving, we had taken, we had worked with a, a local restaurant to turn a whole ton of our pumpkins into hundreds of pumpkin pies. And some of those went to our, um, the uh, Thanksgiving food that went down there. And there's like whole families living in one room. You know, those little motels that are up and down, like the old, mm -hmm. the old roads before the highways came in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have a lot of those and we have I don't know what it's like where you live, but we have a lot of those and there's whole families living in those. I mean, like in those hotel rooms, they have a microwave, maybe a hot plate. But you can't really cook for a family or like really live in that. Um, so what we were envisioning was um, greenhousing. <laughs> with food forest planted in between it and intensive wraparound services with education, mental health, transportation, childcare, because you cannot disentangle these things from one another as to break the poverty cycle or to heal these families that have ended up in this situation because of hundreds of years of inequities and the system being stacked against them. And they say that right now it is, I think, 217 years for women to reach financial equity with men and 250 years for Black families to reach financial equity with white families. Why would we? So we approached Carol Foy because of the way her, the governor's race is going right now. I don't think that's going to be moving forward with her 
as much as independently with Lavisha and I, because the politicians, you know, they need to do what they're doing. They're playing the game. Their vision of bringing in economic stability, what was said to me was jobs need to come here and these people need to slowly pull themselves out of poverty. We have the ability through visioning that is big and bold and fundraising to like, why wait for the Titanic to turn itself when you can hire a tugboat to turn it, turn that thing around right now by instituting all of these things. And there is the money out there. We as a country spend money on way more foolish things than this. There is the possibility to really change the trajectory of families' lives within a generation by doing these things. So I, the fact that anyone would even hesitate to say, yes, this is what we're doing is just beyond me. So that is what we're going to be working towards. That's going to be like now five or 10 year plan, unfortunately, because we're getting everything else up and off the ground. And it is, there's only so many hours in the day. Oh my gosh. If I could do all of these things or hire an army of people to do them, I would do them tomorrow. But unfortunately, that's going to be slower going than some of the other things that we have going on right now. Mm -hmm. I know there's so many moving pieces and so much to coordinate and implement. And uh, yeah, I really appreciate you. And gosh, well, Amy Rose, you know, during the course of our conversation, I've been reminded of the importance of networks of connectivity and how it's really only through their leveraging that we're able to accomplish really transformative work. But I also know that for many, this may feel like the greatest hindrance because of our cultural attitudes towards individualism. So as we come to a close, I wonder if you could end by speaking to the reality that these networks of connectivity are going to be what assists us in writing out systemic collapse. I was of that mindset that you talk about, like the rugged individualist, uh, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Not in that same way that like who's the same kind of person that's typically thought of when you say that. But um, my thing was, I was, because of that, I was afraid to ask for help or assistance because I didn't want to be perceived as weak, especially because I'm a woman doing this work. And that made me nervous. It's why I sought out an Ivy League education in sustainable agriculture, because I didn't want anyone to look at me as a Native woman and say, you don't know what you're talking about, or think of me as less than them. But by doing that and failing, trying to do everything myself, I learned the real true value of community. I mean, and it's just like I said earlier, it's the way that we are supposed to live. We are herd animals, for lack of a better uh, description than I can think of right now. But I guess it's, sorry, I'm like trying to collect my thoughts around it because there's so much I want to say and I'm not sure where to go with that first. Um, And I know that I can't, I could talk forever on it. But really, it's kind of coming back to that tribal collectivism where we all survive together. Clan mothers take care of everyone. They make sure that everyone is housed and everyone is fed. So I feel like coming back to the networking and collaboration aspect and tying it all in with disseminating information and 
empowering other people to do these projects that we are shooting off onto and really take the reins and step into their own power in these projects is really kind of coming full circle and fulfilling that legacy of what many, many generations of my grandmother's past did with taking care of everyone. It's like the whole thing, the whole tribe survives together and we make sure that our cache of food is full and we take care of every single last person, no matter what, we're all in it together. And I don't know, it's, this has been a great tragedy for so many families. I can only imagine what some people are going through. We have mile long lines at the food pantries here. Some of the food pantries cannot keep up around the counties surrounding us. So I cannot imagine the dread that they feel not being able to supply their people or the dread that the families that rely on them feel. So I guess it's kind of making sure that I collaborate and work with other people kind of is a survival technique or a survival method that we're all need, we all need to kind of get over ourselves um, and work together to be a little bit better about in a way, I guess I could say. I think that the medicine for tragedy is community. We have everything that we need if we share. Mm -hmm. And we need to come back to that mentality of collectivism. And because it doesn't just benefit that person. It def if our community is stronger as a whole, it benefits all of us. And I think people really lose sight of that because of that attitude of individualism and we have to have I mean America is a has the like worships the hero or the you know that sort of thing mm. well Amy Rose this has been such uh, uplifting and energizing conversation I feel so empowered after speaking with you I just I love your passion and the confidence that you bring to this work, I think it's so important for us to have leaders that are just going for it, no matter how complex and complicated and challenging the issues may be. Uh, so I thank you for that. And thanks for spending some time with us today. Dakagwi, thank you. Wiluini. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast. The music you heard today was by Ian George and Edie. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, and Francesca Glassbell.